Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. It is 6 o'clock in the morning, Friday, the 22nd of July, year 2022. And you know what? You can't hear, maybe you can hear them in the background, but you know what? The the seagulls are already saying it's been hot enough. (laughs) Well, what are you going to do? Anyway, you are very, very lucky why? Because you have come to the coolest place on earth, and that is the Friday, July 22nd edition of the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast. Without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome to the 22nd of July, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. As always, I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, founded on July 18th, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This weekly podcast show is dedicated to exploring the history of one of America's most notable and dynamic communities. It's a special place that so many of us call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as mine do, or you've been here for only 400 seconds or somewhere in between, (laughs) whether you're here to stay or you're just passing through, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history so congratulations. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, which is a project of Site Design Associates, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Well, we'll step back in time to Greenwich, Connecticut's Great Estates era, an extraordinary time when grand mansions, beautifully landscaped grounds, and fabulous gardens were designed and created for the pleasure of their owners. Now, on today's 22nd of July episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, you'll hear about Rambleside, as found in the Junior League of Greenwich's book on this legendary era in Greenwich. Connecticut's history. Now, located in mid-country Greenwich, Rambleside was built in the 1920s for Zalman Gilbert Simmons II and his wife, Frances Ethbridge Grant. Simmons' father founded the successful Simmons Betting Company, in turn inheriting it when his father died in 1910. The company was grown into a national concern with its mattresses found in the White House and on two of the world's luxurious ocean liners, namely the SS Normandy and the RMS Queen Mary. The town of Greenwich, by the time 
the family moved in, was said to have been the richest town per capita in the world. You'll hear about the 25-room mansion being designed by New York's most celebrated interior decorator of that era, Elsie DeWolf, its cottages, outbuildings, and more. Now, Judge Frederick Hubbard, Augustus Hubbard was storyteller who published under the pen name Ezekiel Lemondale and about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff in Greenwich's history. Our featured column from Judge Hubbard dates from May 12, 1932, in which he shared with his readers uh, bits and pieces of uh, history about Great Captain's Island and, I hate to say it, an, an infestation of rats on Island Beach. But that was then, not now. All right, now, we'll go through the pages of Greenwich Before 2000, an updated revised edition of Before and After 1776, a comprehensive chronology of the town of Greenwich. Now, what happened from the year 1677 to 1685? Well, Greenwich needed a schoolmaster. Some tax matters were revealed. King's Highway got its name. We know it today as East Putnam Avenue. And Greenwich's first marriage was recorded, and there was more. Erwin Edwards, in his published column a century ago in the Greenwich News and Graphic, illuminated the people of Greenwich with news of a special class of souls who dwelled here. I'm going to share who they are. Who were they? Inventors. Yes, people who invented things. 100 years ago, the people of Greenwich witnessed the destruction by fire of a number of wooden buildings and a boat plant on the west side of Steamboat Road, including the loss of nine or more yachts, motorboats, and canoes belonging to yachtsmen of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club and other prominent citizens. I'll have news about that. Discover Greenwich, creating a sense of place celebrating the 90th year anniversary of the Greenwich Historical Society. My friends, this has been a summertime hit. I'll have news of exhibits, activities, and events for you and the public to enjoy, plus more history than we know what to do with. Well, as I said, summer is sizzling in more ways than one, and you've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience. Coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. 
a special project of Site Design Associates and its principal landscape architect, Peter F. Alexander, the Greenwich, Connecticut-based Long Island Sound Institute consists of a community of professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned individuals progressively congruently working towards safeguarding Long Island Sound through research, historical perspective, and restoring ecological balance through management, policy, and education. The Long Island Sound Institute's aspiration is to promote modern planning and the implementation of the most up-to-date technologies available to conserve Long Island Sound for future generations. Long Island Sound Institute's studio is at 2 Greenwich Office Park West. To contact the Institute, email LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. That's L-I-S-I-H-I-2023 at gmail.com or call area code 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. AMUSA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual ambassador museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. Its goal is to correct a stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. That's, uh, that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-4604. Or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Right, well, chartered in 1959, the Junior League of Greenwich, Connecticut has played an incredibly productive and influential role in fostering valuable projects and services for the town of Greenwich and for its people. They have done this uh, in a way that nobody else has done before or since. Now, one of those projects was the research and publication of The Greatest States, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book. It's an incredible book, and I urge you to find a copy of it. You will thoroughly enjoy it. Trust me on this. Now, the late 
Town historian, a good friend of mine, William E. Finch Jr., referred to this period of our history as the quote-unquote flowering of Greenwich. It was an age when the word Greenwich became synonymous for the word millionaire. <laughs> the Greatest States, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. Now, you can learn more about the Junior League of Greenwich at jlgreenwich.org. Its offices are located at 231 East Putnam Avenue in the heart of the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Call 203-869-1979 to, um, uh, to learn more uh, about them. Now, on today's Great Estate segment, I am going to share with you about a great estate located in the Clapper Ridge mid-country area of Greenwich. It's known as Rambleside. Its principal owner was Zalman G. Simmons. The original architect and construction is not known, and the architect for renovations, which were done in the 1920s, is also unknown. But nevertheless, it's a beautiful estate, and you're about to find out why. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as you listen along. The Greenwich Estate created by Zalman Gilbert Simmons, who lived 1871 to 1934, and his wife Frances, 1882 to 1964, included not only his magnificent English country manor house with its immediate landscaping, but also five acres of iris gardens containing 60,000 irises collected from all over the world. My goodness. Woodlands, fields, and an eight-acre spring-fed lake made this property one of the most desirable in the area. And the Simmonses lived there year-round, seldom traveling far from it. I can't say I blame them. Zalman Simmons became president of the foundering Simmons Company in Kenosha, Wisconsin, upon the death of his father in 1910. In that position, he proceeded to revolutionize the, quote, nighttime furniture, unquote, of the nation, and his company became one of the largest manufacturers of beds, springs, and mattresses in the United States. He bought North Carolina text mills to improve the quality of his mattress uh, mattress ticking and added to his holdings companies already making fine furniture. An extremely creative man with a dynamic personality, he expanded his business from its regional status and moved into Canadian, English, and French markets. When Simmons moved the executive offices of his firm from Kenosha to New York City in 1923, he began to buy land in the mid-section of Greenwich. Alice C. Schwab sold him most of his acreage uh, in March of that year, but he continued to add to it until late in 1929. After giving building sites to his sons, Zalman Jr. and Grant, he still owned over 100 acres. The Schwab property originally had on it a shingle-style farmhouse, which Simmons kept as the nucleus of his new house. He enclosed it with white painted brick and added to it extensively. The resulting mansion, with its very colored slate roof and seamed granite trim, is a stunningly beautiful home. Great attention was paid to architectural details, and the finest building materials were used, though neither the architect's name nor the builder's is known. Okay, finally, to complete the interior of the house, Francis Simmons engaged the talented Elsie DeWolf, the interior designer who revolutionized 20th century design in Europe and America, and who also happened to be a personal friend of hers. 
The original entrance to the property was on Clappard Ridge Road at an old tumble-down red wooden gate which had been a landmark for years, particularly for fox hunters, who often gathered there on their horses before the hunt began. When Simmons put his cinder road through, he had the old gate removed, but upon hearing that the hunters missed their landmark, he built stone walls at the entrance and put an iron archway overhead with the sign reading, quote, the Red Gate, unquote. His road, called Woods Drive, led through beautiful forests, wound around the lake, and looped to the northeast before coming back down to his house and to those belonging to his sons. The front door of Rambleside opens to a grand entrance hall, which exhibits a classic DeWolf touch, an inlaid copper and black marble floor. The family member who visited often remembers being encouraged in his younger days to, quote, walk on the black squares, unquote. This beautifully paneled hall opens to the left um, into a study called the wood room. Paneled with pine brought from an old house in Bloomsbury, England, it has an unusual fireplace with accents of antique wood and silver inlay, and the Simmonses had its walls hung with extraordinary pictures, all of snowstorms. Hmm. To the right, through a spacious white-paneled stair hall and music room, is the library, a handsome room finished in walnut. The floor is teak. The fireplace is black marble, and the recessed bookcases are punctuated by full-length engaged Corinthian columns. Oversized bay windows provide a panorama of lawns and gardens to the north, west, and south. From the main hall, one also enters both the drawing room and the dining room. The walls of the latter were covered with antique Chinese wallpaper. A breakfast porch there, enclosed with glass windows, overlooks the rear terraces. Tall oriental folding screens were part of DeWolf's decoration for both the dining room and the entrance hall, and bifold leaded glass doors and glass mirrored panels opened between the two rooms. Floors vary from the antique parquet of the drawing room to the Italian terracotta tile in the flower arranging room. Dramatically placed mirrors added to the atmosphere of the downstairs and a collection of paintings ranging from the works by Sir Joshua Reynolds to those of Georgia O'Keeffe reflected the owner's taste in art. Because of the east-west orientation of the house on a horizontal line, most rooms are suffused with brilliant sunlight, and the sense of openness is emphasized by the many arched French doors which led directly to the broad rear, broad rear terrace. When the Simmonsons lived at Rambleside, the service quarters on the ground floor consisted of a butler's pantry, a kitchen, a kitchen pantry, an icebox room, a laundry, a maid's sitting and dining room, a lavatory, and a servant's porch. Extensive family, guest, and staff accommodations were located on the second floor. The master suite included a sitting room with fireplace, two separate dressing rooms with baths, and a large heated glass-enclosed sleeping porch. Two other suites, with bedrooms, parlors, baths, and one with a porch, were available for guests. On this floor were also six maids' rooms, two baths, a lavatory, two large linen closets, and a serving room. 
The third floor has two master bedrooms and baths, a billiard room, a children's playroom, two attics, and a built-in cedar closet. The cellar contains an unusual stone vault for wine and two built-in wine closets in addition for the usual furnace room, preserve closet, and other storage space. A guest house, which could be used independently as a self-contained unit, is attached to the main house by a curved, covered arcade. It has a living room with a mantled fireplace, a dining room, a full kitchen, two bedrooms, a bath, and its own private courtyard, as well as an attached three-car garage. In the farm group of outbuildings across the driveway from the main house were two two family cottages for the butler, the chauffeur, the chief greenhouse man, and the superintendent. Two greenhouses, a six-car garage with apartments upstairs, a small staple for, for horses. Among the animals kept there over the years were two ponies, tiddlywinks and jingle bells. <laughs> they, they pulled the grandchildren in a pony cart and were hitched to a Russian sleigh in winter when there was snow. Behind the guest house was an aviary filled with exotic birds. A duck house at the lake provided shelter and a feeding place for hundreds of ducks, favorites of Francis Simmons. The landscaping and the many gardens on the estate provided a spectacular setting for the Simmons' mansion. Since Zalman Simmons was not willing uh, to wait for trees to grow on the barren land around his newly built house, he spent thousands of dollars trucking in fully grown elm trees and replanting them. Some of them were as large as two feet in diameter and so heavy to transport that Simmons had to have all of the bridges en route checked to make sure that they were strong enough to hold the load. Some residents still remember the accomplishment with amazement and comment on the beauty of the trees which flourished on the lawns until they succumbed to Dutch elm disease some years later. Isabella Pendleton, a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects, designed the many gardens on the property. Boxwood bordered formal gardens near the house, and there was a large walled rose garden. A wisteria-covered pergola of stone and beam construction led to a garden named the Adam and Eve Garden for the statues there. Cut stone stairways separated the many terraces. Stone walls and sculpted hedgework divided lawns and gardens into areas pleasing to the eye. Small patios and a mosaic-tiled fish pond were also part of the scene. Frances Simmons was extremely interested in flowers, and it was her passion for gardens that led to the magnificent collection, the so-called River of Iris. The hundreds of species, including water iris, were marked with metal tags, and visitors came from all over the world to see them. They were interspaced with walks and other plantings, laid out in the amphitheater-like area of land with two artificial lakes. The superintendent was also head of the botanical department at Columbia University. And before the Great Depression, 83 gardeners were said to have worked regularly on the property as day workers. Near the greenhouses, there were also a vegetable garden, grape arbors, and a small orchard of apple and pear trees. Pear Lane, near the farm buildings, was named for the fruit trees which grew there. Beyond the gardens, broad sweeping lawns surround the house. The expensive rear flagstone terrace provides large sitting areas accessible 
from many of the main rooms and two grassy terraces sweep down to a 150-foot reflecting pool with a fountain in its center. Lawns continue behind it, ending at a forest of towering evergreens in the distance. Zalman Simmons loved his business and applied vision, creativity, and a great deal of time to it. He increased the Simmons company's sales eightfold to $40 million and pursued his interests in finance and the stock market. He further increased his fortune. A successful businessman, he was also a good athlete, having gained local fame as a baseball player at St. John's School in Manlius, New York. In later years, his hobby was yachting. Francis Simmons, who had very definite ideas about how things should be done, presided over the estate in matriarchal fashion. Since the Simmons's two sons lived in enormous houses on either side of Rambleside, children and grandchildren were nearby. Christmas was always an extravaganza, with all the family at the big house for a huge Christmas dinner at midday. In the afternoon, marionette shows and similar entertainment were provided for the children, who were fed again afterward and sent to bed. The adults then, as a family tradition, sat down to a formal dinner which lasted past midnight so that Zalman's birthday could be ushered in on December 26. The Simmons' social life included a great deal of entertaining, sometimes at musicales featuring chamber groups. They were regular members of the Round Hill Community Church and donated the organ that is now there. As could be expected, given her love of flowers, Frances Simmons was an active member of the Greenwich Garden Club. Zalman Simmons died in 1934 and the estate was gradually broken up. The main house was sold in 1938, although Frances Simmons continued to live in Greenwich until she died in her 90s. In 1951, the family gave 70 acres between Clappard Ridge Road and Lake Avenue to the Greenwich Boys Club. The land has been used to provide the club's members, at that time numbering 1,300, with accessible camping grounds, a chance to enjoy the outdoors, to study woodcraft, and to fish, swim, and canoe. The mansion is left today on less than 10 acres. You are listening to the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. You know, it's easy to see why the Greenwich Historical Society's Tavern Garden Markets are such a hit. In a class by itself, the Tavern Garden Markets feature a specially curated and alternating selection of locally grown and sourced products. Support local growers, producers, and artisans when you fill your basket and your home with the bounties of nature and unique handcrafted goods. Enjoy farm-to-table organic produce, fresh eggs, plants, and flowers. Savor the flavor of nutritiously prepared foods, fresh-baked breads, fruit pies, and donuts. 
Find the perfect gift among an array of vintage silver, jewelry, stationery, ceramics, and accessories. Mark your calendars, my friends, for Wednesday, July 13, and July 27, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Now, I want to let you in a little secret. Ready? Early birds are welcomed at 9.30, but you didn't hear that from me. Now, Tavern Garden Markets are held in the lobby and Tavern Gardens at the Greenwich Historical Society, 47 Strickland Road, Cascob. Sponsored by Yashmin Lloyds and Compass. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. My friends, I'm sure you'll agree that Music on the Great Lawn on Thursdays is a hit. Presented by the First Bank of Greenwich and supported by Waterstone on High Ridge, Music on the Great Lawn is located weekly in the heart of the Greenwich Historical Society's Bush Holly House campus at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob. Trust me, friends, if you haven't noticed it already, summer is sizzling. Pack your picnic and enjoy an evening of live music in our historic gardens. Mark your calendars this month for Thursday, July 14, when King's Highway is set to perform. On Thursday, July 28th, get ready for suburban chaos. Space is limited. Advanced registration is recommended. Members, $10. Non-members, $20. Hey, become a member of the Greenwich Historical Society and receive special rates. Don't put it off any further. The Great Lawn opens at 5.30 p.m. The concert starts at 6.30 p.m. and goes until 8 p.m. My friends, you can learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call area code 203-869-6899. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org.
Well, throughout its history, the town of Greenwich has been the scene of some incredible fire disasters. Um, there are too many of them for me to, um, uh, to go through in, in one of these shows. But one of the things I've decided to do is to uh, start going through the um, records uh, of the town and, um, and see what it is that I can find and uh, share those with you on uh, future shows. Uh, so I have one that I'm going to share with you. It happened just uh, around a century ago, and um, it was published um, in the June 9th, 1922 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. This happened over on uh, Steamboat Road. Um, and the headline uh, say, states as follows, Yachts burned in fierce fire. Crucker boat plant wiped out. Firemen overcome by smoke. This must have been quite spectacular uh, to, uh, to have witnessed a um, hundred years ago. Could you imagine if it was happening in the kind of uh, um, heat wave weather that we are experiencing right now? That would be just uh, awful. So let me just share this uh, with you. Again, this, uh, this happened uh, about uh, 100 years ago. And uh, it goes as follows. A number of wooden buildings on the former web property owned by Mara Brothers and the boat plant of Fred S. Crucker on the west side of Steamboat Road were completely gutted by Monday afternoon or by fire Monday afternoon. Together with the loss of some nine or more yachts, motorboats and canoes belonging to yachtsmen of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club and other prominent citizens, entailing a loss of several thousands of dollars. Lloyd Hubbard and quote-unquote Turk McCormick, two Greenwich firemen, were overcome by smoke and were taken to Greenwich Hospital. By the fire, while the fire was in its early stages, Matsushipa, a young Japanese employed as cook on John Hendrick's power yacht White Swan, anchored on the east side of Steamboat Road, was injured by an automobile owned by Abel Barr of Rock Ridge and driven by a chauffeur, Alfio Urata. He was rushed to the Greenwich Hospital in the bar car, suffering from concussions of the head and a bad cut to, on his forehead. Urata accompanied Officer James Lipset to police headquarters, where he was paroled until Tuesday morning when Judge Meade fined his bond at $200, the case being adjourned until tomorrow morning. Fred Barnes, the young son of Mr. and Mrs. Elmer Barnes of East Elm Street, a messenger boy in the employ of the local Western Union, was one of the first to discover the fire. He was delivering a telegram on his bicycle in that section when he saw smoke issuing from one of the buildings. He endeavored to turn in an alarm or turn on an alarm from the firebox himself, but being unable to do so, he rushed into the office of the Standard Oil Company nearby, where the fire companies were notified by telephone. The huge clouds of black smoke pouring from the buildings could be seen for many miles around, and automobiles and pedestrians were soon hurrying to the scene of the fire from all directions. The amateur Rome and volunteer fire companies made a quick run to the fire and soon had six lines of hose laid, pumping the water from the sound by means of their two pumping machines, as well as the nearest hydrants, which were some distance from the buildings. Fire lines were quickly established and members of the Greenwich Fire Patrol, assisted by the borough police, regulated traffic. The fire is believed to have started in a bale of hay in the Marr Brothers building from spontaneous combustion. 
a quantity of lumber and asphalt in this building was consumed. The flames then spread so rapidly to the Crooker building adjourning, adjoining that only a few of the boats could be removed to a place of safety. John R. John R. Johnson was instrumental in saving the Vesper 11, a power yacht owned by Mr. Crooker, which was formerly the property of Thatcher T.P. Luckier, and some other small craft were taken from the buildings. Probably the two largest yachts destroyed were, quote, the Windward Two, belonging to Richard A. Monks, which has sailed in the Arrow-class races of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club for several seasons, and is 31 feet in length, and Dr. V.C. Piatti's Vivante. Other yachts and smaller craft burned included George Hogan's Locust, John J. White's Ruth, Mrs. Arthur King Laughlin's Marver, Wilson G. Boyden's Motorboat, The Way, H. Allen Barton's canoe and Alfred Wellstood's canoe, also a boat owned by Mr. Wagstaff. The Crooker residence, located within a few feet of the buildings, caught fire repeatedly but was saved by the firemen. The rear end of the house and a part of the roof were badly charred. The other buildings of Mar Brothers, in close proximity on the other side, were also greatly in danger. The Standard Oil Company's building adjoins the Crooker residence on the north, and in the yards at the rear are some six or seven large gas tanks. It was feared that while the fire was at its height, that these tanks might blow up and the crowds of people who had congregated on either side of the street were warned of the danger and many did not go near the burning buildings, fearing that the tanks might explode. Turk McCormick and Lloyd Hubbard had to be rushed to the hospital in a fireman's apparatus. Hubbard was carried down a ladder leading to the Crooker house, completely overcome by the smoke. Protection Engine and Hose Company of East Portchester were summoned and rendered valuable assistance. The fire was raging until 6 o'clock, nearly three hours after it broke out, and firemen were kept on duty pretty much all of the night, and it was feared that it would break out again. Just after the first alarm had been sounded, Matsushipa, who had been employed on the Kendrick yacht only a day, with William Morehouse, a steward on the same yacht, started out of the driveway at the request of a woman living nearby to take her car from the opposite side of the street. Shipa ran headlong into the overland limousine car operated by Urata, his head striking the side front glass with such terrific force as to break the glass. The force of the impact caused him to spin around like a top in the street three or four times, and then he fell backward to the pavement. When picked up, he was in an unconscious condition and was believed by eyewitnesses to be dead. The broken glass caused a deep gash on his, in his forehead. That he must have hit the glass in the car with such terrific force is the opinion of Urata, as under ordinary circumstances it would take some heavy implement to break the glass, which is more than a quarter of an inch in thickness. Urata is said he thought that someone had thrown a stone at the at the car and did not know that Shipa had been injured until he glanced back. 
Morehouse and other eyewitnesses said Urata was traveling at a fast rate of speed, but this is denied by the driver. He saw the smoke issuing from the building in the village and drove down as far as the Indian Harbor Yacht Club and was returning toward Greenwich when the accident occurred. From the latest reports, Shipa's condition is much improved. Well, that, my friend, must have been, again, quite a fire to um, to bear witness to over in the Steamboat Road area. And that was published uh, in the Greenwich News and Graphic, Friday, June 9th, 1922. My friends, once again on this weekly segment, we pay tribute to a prolific and very gifted citizen of the town of Greenwich in the latter 19th century into the first part of the 20th, and his name was Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard. He really was a remarkable soul. He was a lawyer, writer, gifted storyteller. Um, he used the, uh, the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale. I still don't know where he got it from, but that's okay. And he wrote about the history of Greenwich and what was for him the present time. Um, he called it Cracker Barrel stuff. Uh, so <laughs> there it is. His column appeared um, in the Greenwich News uh, under the column, The Judge's Corner. Now, we're very indebted to Frank Nicholson. He collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich News articles, publishing them years ago in compendium form as Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by, of course, the one and only Frank Nicholson. This uh, this week's column is uh, number 137. It was published on May 12th, 1932. The headline, The Great Captain's Island Sail, The History of the Island Back in the 17th Century, The Rats That Once Infested Island Beach as the Result of a Wreck. And the story goes as follows. John M. Mitchell had charge of the recent auction sale of Great Captain's Island, there were 151 men present and several ladies. The auction, by order of the receiver in bankruptcy, was widely advertised and 4,000 illustrated circulars were distributed. The first and second mortgages totaled $107,000 when the bidding ended at $106,500 in favor of John Salmon of White Plains. It was evident that no real buyer with a certified check for $10,000 in his pocket was present. The holder of the second mortgage had, to bid, had a bid in it. When money was plenty and speculation was rampant, half a million had been spent on or in the acquisition and improvement of this beautiful island. Fortunately, the money mostly came from widely diversified interests, stockholders and club members who are not limited to any one locality. The history of the island goes back to the 17th century, and it has always borne the name of Great Captain's Island. Spencer P. Mead's history at page 288 gives a very clear account of the three islands, the other two being Little Captain's Island and The Clump. As Captain Daniel Patrick was the first military commander and original settler of the town, it is believed that the islands were named for him. And yet others link the name with Captain Kidd, the pirate, who frequented the sound and did not hesitate to visit Gardner's Island and New London. It is an interesting fact that these islands once belonged to New York, just as Fisher's Island had been in both jurisdictions. 
For many years, this question of jurisdiction was disputed, and several commissions have had the matter under consideration. But finally, in January 1880, the matter was settled, and the islands went to into the town grand list, and Greenwich had collected taxes on them ever since. The year 1829 was the height of prosperity for the farmers of Greenwich. While their crops were varied, the principal one was potatoes. The potato bug, which originated in Colorado many years later, and upon its first arrival here was called the Colorado beetle, was no menace to the Greenwich farmers. The little market sloops that sailed from Cascab, Mianus, and Greenwich often controlled the price of potatoes in the, in the New York market. In that year, 1829, the United States obtained title to three acres on the Great Island and built the first lighthouse upon the petition of our market boat owners. It was a short wooden affair with the keeper's house nearby and that house still remains, used now for a storeroom. In 1868, the present substantial stone building was erected, and the date in raised letters is a prominent feature of the southern side. Two families occupy this house, James Coleman, the keeper, and his father and mother, Lorette Leclerc, his assistant with a wife and infant child of 11 months. There is, an election, there is an, an excellent well of water near the house and a vegetable garden well protected from the winds that are often fierce, in product, in, fierce is productive in an ample variety of products. Asparagus grows wild on some parts of the island, but has not been cultivated because of the lack of abundant fertilizer, which that plant demands. Captain Coleman has, however, set out a few apple, pear, and cherry trees in sheltered parts of the 18-acre island, and he has an extensive chicken farm. Another evidence of the height of the potato crop is the date 1829 cut in the stone cellar on Round Island. Here the Great Field Point Farm discharged its crop into the westerly end of the cellar, to be sent by chutes out of the east end into the empty sloop waiting below. This was the only farm that could dispense with an ox team for transportation to the market sloops. While 1829 saw the height of the potato crop, there were many other storage cellars on the farms throughout the town, most of which have been removed. One was on Lake Avenue on the farm of Captain Augustus Merritt, another on the Drake Mead Farm, North Street, and still another on the Charles Mead Farm at Meads Point, dated, dated 1812, possibly still remaining. The present stone lighthouse showed a fixed light, but for several years it has been a revolving light with a flash of red every two minutes. The foghorn was also introduced 20 or 30 years ago, it was originally worked by steam power, and to the people of Greenwich as far back as Round Hill, it was declared to be a nuisance. When an, oversight, an overnight guest was asked by the host if she had slept well through a foggy night, she had to confess that the moaning of a very sick cow had very much interfered with her rest, and indeed it sounded quite equal to the bellowing bull of Basham 
but now the horn is sounded by compressed air and attachments drive the sound to the south. Possibly Long Island now suffers instead of Greenwich, for we hear, if we listen, only a soft, deep-throated, mellow sound in response to the air pressure. The Great Island has been, in years past, an excellent place for summer campers. They came with their tents from towns in Westchester County, as far away as Bedford and Mount Kisco. It was easy to hire a skiff on the mainland and with a supply of fishing tackle and an occasional addition to the grocery supply. A month was often spent away from the heat of August weather. Captain Warden, the lighthouse keeper, always welcomed campers with and with their daily visits to the well, they brought books, magazines, and pictures that broke the monotony of the keeper's solitary life. Possibly the only fatality at the island occurred one day in September when, with a storm imminent, Captain Warden started for Portchester. Later his body was found and his little skiff went ashore on Byram Point. That was more than 40 years ago. The little island once had a wreck, but all survived, including an army of rats. Few vessels are without the rodents. Ship Ship's hawsers are supposed to be uh, an impossible means for the boarding of wharf rats. Metal discs encircle each hawser while in port, but they get aboard when no apparent opportunity is overlooked. And when that brigantine from Bangor went ashore on the little island, the sailors and the rats all saved themselves. The sailors left but the rats remained to live on clams and flotsam and jetsam of an occasionally visited island, while they multiplied with wonderful rapidity. Once a party camped there and lived to tell of the silky-coated rodents that crawled over their faces at night, quote-unquote, but they never went there anymore, unquote. But when the island became the property of George Lauder, Jr., a specialist in the extermination of such pests guaranteed $4,000 to rid the island of every rat, and he did it. Not a rat has been seen at Island Beach, and it is unlikely that another shipwreck will happen to deposit such unpopular creatures on that beautiful summer resort. But the old records and newspaper articles give the location of these islands as from two to three miles away. But no more accurate figures can be given than those established in the winter of 1875. On the pages of an old atlas made by Beers, Ellis, and Sewell in 1867 is a signed entry by the late Myron L. Mason, former judge of our court of probate, and it is as follows. Quote, January and February of 1875 were very cold. Sound navigation was suspended February 17. February 18th, Joseph Jeffers, Charles S. Russell, Joseph G. Meade Jr., and Norvald Green in a sleigh drove from the steam, uh, steamboat dock to Captain's Island. The same week, J Daniel S. Meade made the following measurements. From the steamboat wharf to Little Captain's Island, 8,557 feet, from the same point to Great Captain's Island, 9,747 feet, 
From Field Point to the Great Island, 6,400 feet. From Field Point to the Steamboat Dock, now the Yacht Club Wharf, 3,687. Daniel C. Meade, who made these measurements, was a well-known county surveyor and judge of probate for many years. He died in 1888, and his picture hangs on the wall of the court of probate. And that, again, was signed by Frederick A. Hubbard, one of our truly favorite um, historians from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Again, his book is entitled Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. It is available in the Greenwich Library System, possibly your on- favorite online bookseller, and perhaps even the Greenwich Historical Society gift shop. Well, Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated revised edition of another favorite Greenwich history book of mine, and that one being Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Now, Greenwich Before 2000 goes through the year 1999, and it was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society, and that that was made possible by the generous support and honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr. He is a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, and he and his family have made numerous charitable bequests throughout the years that have advanced the preservation of Greenwich's history. Now, the book is available at the Greenwich Library System. You can borrow it if you wish. Um, You can also uh, find it, I believe, at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store. Um, Just call 203-869-6899 to find out. You might uh, be able to also find it uh, on your favorite online bookseller. Now, today, uh, because uh, it is July, and this is the month that we pause to celebrate Founders Day in Greenwich, um, I'm going to share with you some of the uh, factoids Uh, that are in Greenwich before 2000, um, found in the years 1677 through 1685. So sit back, relax, and follow along. All right, on February 15th, 1677, Joshua Knapp and John Bowers are appointed to hire a schoolmaster. On April 6th, highways are to be laid out in Mayanis Neck Field at the current Riverside Avenue and Indian Head Road area. Uh, on November 5th of 1677, John Robison is granted rights to build a sawmill on the Byram River. In 1678, on September 3rd of that year, the town hires the Reverend Jeremiah Peck as minister. The townhouse is prepared for his home and stockades are removed. In October that year, the first recorded list of individual estate taxes itemizes 38 property-owning heads of families. And on December 31, 1678, Joshua Tesh is granted one acre, quote, at the quarry, unquote. And that would be west of uh, Minnie Park, um, according to the uh, listing that we have here. Now, in 1679... The road previously called the Westchester Path and the Country Road is now called the King's Highway, later the Post Road, and today it's known as Putnam Avenue. On uh, October 9th, um, 1679, the General Court in Hartford passes a law stating the first Wednesday in November is to be a solemn day of Thanksgiving throughout the colony. In 1681, the earliest recorded marriage in Greenwich is that of, and this is an ancestor of mine, John Meade Jr. and Ruth Hardy by Richard Laws, 
Commissioner of Stamford. In 1682, on October 7th, John, son of John Mead Jr. and Ruth Hardy, is the first recorded birth uh, in Greenwich. Uh, in 1683, January, on January 26th of that year, unclaimed livestock are to be sold by the keepers at auction. Half the money goes to the town, the other half to the finder. And on February 26, 1683, surveys are to be made for a cart bridge over Long Meadow Brook. Uh, on February 26, Quakers and dissenters are notified of their laxity in non-payment of the minister's tax. Uh, on October 16 of, uh, of that year, 1683, Sergeant Joseph Knapp and Sergeant John Bowers are to prepare a list of estates for taxation purposes for the general court. And on November 28th, a new boundary agreement between New York and Connecticut establishes the Byron River as the western boundary of Connecticut, approximately 20 miles from the Hudson River and parallel to it. Connecticut loses Rye and Bedford. In 1684, on May 4th of that year, Ye Sloop Friendship, commanded by Robert Hodge, arrives from Boston with, quote, bushels of summer wheat, unquote. And then in 1685, in April 8th of that year, the town investigates James Palmer's distressed condition for want of provisions for his family. And on April 27 to May 5th, a note is made of all debts owed Mr. Peck by the Quakers which is to be made up by giving him 40 acres between Horseneck and Byron Rivers above the Westchester Path, now the Pexland Road area. By the way, that's off of Round Hill Road. Um, and finally, on May 14, 1685, an impartial Fairfield committee of three is to, quote, run the line, unquote, which means resurvey the border between Stamford and Greenwich. Now, all of this comes from Greenwich Before 2000. The book goes through the year 1999. Um, you can find this um, at or in the Greenwich Library System, possibly at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store. You might be able to find it if you'd like to purchase it uh, on your favorite online bookseller. A little over a century ago, in uh, July 1920, Erwin Edwards of the Greenwich News and Graphic authored a column about inventors in the town of Greenwich. You don't hear about that uh, class of people, um, even in the present day. But uh, I found this to be rather interesting, and I thought that maybe I would share it with you. And he begins as follows. Simon Ingersoll, the inventor of the steam rock drill, a horseless carriage, quote-unquote, a steam plow, and other implements that have been of great service in the saving of time and labor, lived in Greenwich. That Ingersoll was a genius in his line, everyone knows, who knows of him at all. He was continually at work on new devices, carrying out his ideas, solving problems in mechanics that were not idle dreams, problems that were solved into realities. His active mind, however, was often disheartened and his hand discouraged because his inventions were, were by a skeptical world, considered not practicable. His ideas did not fit into the times at all. They were far ahead uh, of the era in which he lived. He was born just half a century too soon to have his inventions appreciated. Ingersoll was not the only Yankee originator of mechanical implements whose home was in Greenwich. There were others who deserve and should have recognition. Their names, perhaps, 
have not come into such prominence as Ingersoll's, but they thought out something, brought forth some things that have proved of value and benefit and have come into general use everywhere. And so Greenwich, while always considered a farming community, has produced men other than the farmer, the tiller of the soil. Men of an inventive turn of mind, the kind of men scattered all over the state who have made the name Connecticut known the world over and often alluded to in jest and jealousy as, quote-unquote, the nutmeg state. If you have ever been in any of the grain elevators scattered uh, across, uh, over the country, you must have noticed how the grain is taken up to the top floor and how, with the regularity of clockwork, the journey is made easily and quickly. You must have noticed that it was all accomplished by means of an endless chain attached to which were cups or buckets placed a certain distance apart on the chain belt. Perhaps you thought when looking at that simple piece of machinery that it was a modern invention and had only come into use with the building of the great grain storage warehouses. No, not at all. Possibly, it may surprise you to know that this grain elevator was in use in Greenwich 150 years ago and was the invention of a Greenwich man. It was Silas Davis, who owned the Indian Harbor Tide Mill, who was the originator of this endless belt system for carrying grain to the upper floors, and it was first used by him in the east end of the old Coscob Tide Mill. The original leather belt and the cups which had become uh, which had become work worn by it by its use were in the old mill when it was destroyed by fire a few years ago they had been put away and were treasured as historic relics but were unfortunately all burned with the mill this bolt had become so widely known among millers and others that many were the requests for places of it in preserve as souvenirs of the first grain elevator bolt made a century and a half ago. Previous to the working out by Mr. Davis of his idea for carrying grain from the lower floor to the loft of the mill, all the cereal had to be either hoisted or boosted uh, uh, to the upper floor by oxen, pulling a rope attached to a block and fall, or it was taken up the stairs on men's shoulders, a slow and tedious job. The thought came to Mr. Davis while he was wearily trudging up the creaking stairway with a heavy bag of rye on his back. Why couldn't I make an endless leather belt that would revolve at a moderate incline, kept in motion by power from the water wheel, and carry the grain to the loft, quote-unquote, Good question. <laughs> the loft resolved itself into a trial, and a few days he had such plan in working order, and set the belt in motion. But he saw that that wouldn't do. Wasn't just the thing, because the grain slid um, onto the belt, for there was nothing to keep it in place. He was convinced, however, that he was on the right track and could accomplish his object. What is the hinder, he thought. Fasten wooden cleats on the belt half a foot or so apart. That ought to do it. Ought to collect the grain, keep it on the belt, carry it to the top floor, and spill it onto the bin as the belt turned over on its return or downward trip, quote-unquote. 
He puts the cleats on the belt and tried that plan. It worked much better, but some of the grain slid off at the side of the belt. Another thought came, quote, why not make a cleat shaped like a cup or make the cleat hollow in the center so that the grain could be scooped up from the pile and retained in a receptacle, unquote. That idea seemed to be a good one, and so he made a wooden cup and fastened it in the center of the belt. Then he would put on the power and set the belt in motion. He watched the cup dive into the pile of grain. He saw it come out on the other side of the pile. Yes, it was full to overflowing. Would it hold its contents until it reached the loft? He kept his eyes on that cup as it went slowly up and up. He noticed that no grain fell out of it. He saw it go over the top, and then it disappeared. He waited for it to make the downward trip and come into position again. It was empty, just as he expected that it would be, and he knew that it had deposited the grain in the bin in the loft as he had planned for it to do. Lo, the thing was a success. It had accomplished what he thought was possible. It was only now a matter of attaching more cups to the belt, the proper distance apart, and he had his grain elevator complete and in practical working order. The only change that was made was in substituting iron cups for the wooden ones a little later. The day of the slow oxen and the block and the fall was over at that mill, and no more would men toil up the the stairs with bags of grain on their backs. It was this green elevator of Mr. Davis that was among the first, if not the first, of the many labor-saving, time-saving, and money-saving inventions that have made the name Connecticut known the world over or whatever, wherever improvements and progress have taken place. Of course, everyone has seen a pair of ice tongs, for they have been in use for years, or ever since the ice wagon came to your door. Ask the next man that you meet who first made and used the ice tongs, and what will he say? He will probably tell you, I don't know, do you, quote-unquote. Well, it was Ephraim Lane who who first made this implement, which you always see hanging over the rear of an ice wagon. And it was in his blacksmith shop in Koskob where it was hammered into existence. An ice man came into his shop and asked him if he could make some kind of pinchers that would pick up the ice quickly and hold it firmly, and so made as to make it easy for the ice to be handled and carried without touching it with the hands. Quote, I guess it can uh, get up something that will do, quote unquote. That was the blacksmith's reply, and he did that. Try that, he said to the ice man on his next visit. Quote, that may be what you want, unquote. And the blacksmith handed him the ice tongs now in use everywhere. Where was the first felt hat made? Do you know? Perhaps not, more likely not. The first felt hat was made in Greenwich many years ago in a felt factory in Glenville. It was Hiram Burns, an employee of that factory, who fashioned it. One day, while at work rolling up the felt, he said to himself, quote, I believe this felt could be made into a hat. I'll make, I'll make a form in the shape of a hat and cover it with felt, press it out, and let it remain there a while and see what comes of it. I believe it will make me a good hat 
to wear around here. Little did he think that his new material hat would come into great favor. Today, the felt hat is worn everywhere. These three men are not, all, not the only ones who have lived in Greenwich and have helped give the state the name that it has been the home of inventors. Well, so there you go, my friends. That comes from Erwin Edwards, and that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, July 9th, 1920. About three uh, individuals uh, here in Greenwich in the, uh, in the 19th, early 20th century who were inventors. Well, as we start to close out the show today, I want to thank you very much for listening. It is a pleasure to have you and to be with you actually every week. Um, you know, sharing the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut is one of um, my passions, and I'm so glad to have the privilege to be able to, uh, to do that with you. Now, before I go, I have a couple of short announcements. One of them is that I am looking forward to welcoming the one and only first selectman of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, Fred Camillo, to the the show. We're going to be having him on. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Also, I am going to be having Frank Gaudio. He is the president of First Bank of Greenwich, headquartered in Coscob. Really looking forward to welcoming Frank uh, to um, to the show. So please be sure to tune in. I'll let you know when uh, he will be on as well as Fred. And we have other guests that we are lining up as well. Um, a lot of great things coming up for you. Now, I want to thank you for tuning in to the 22nd of July 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. It's hosted by me. I am the one and only, hopefully, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, here in the good old USA. Founded on July 18th, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. And the people here are very extraordinary and interesting as well. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we're very, very glad to have you. The Greenwich in Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, which is a special project of Site Design Associates, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, uh, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management and listeners like you everywhere. Now, do you want to contact me? I love to get email and uh, questions from my audience here, there, and everywhere. So please contact me by email at greenwichatownforallseasons at gmail.com. Uh, you can learn more about the show and you can listen to past shows without, by the way, going through a paywall by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. I also post links uh, to the uh, shows on various Facebook uh, groups, and one of those would be, of course, you are, uh, you know, you are from Greenwich. We also have one for the show, Greenwich a Town for All Seasons. Please look for that and like that, please. Images of Greenwich, Connecticut is a group that I strongly recommend that you uh, that you uh, join. Um, it focuses on literally images of Greenwich, Connecticut. There's also Greenwich Connections, the Byram Neighborhood Association, Friends of Byram Park, and of course, um, a tribute to our friends over in Portchester. They have the Portchester New York Historical Archive and so on and so forth. By the way, please remember to check in to the Greenwich Historical Society by going to GreenwichHistory.org. There is so much going on at the Greenwich Historical Society. We literally have a summer season over there that is sizzling. There are just 
new things coming on all the time. And boy, wait until the autumn comes up. There's going to be a lot of things that will be um, happening, and I will be absolutely sure to, uh, to announce those here. Before I go, I just want to remind you that our next show is scheduled for Friday, the 29th of July, 2022. My friends, please stay cool. Stay out of the um, of the sun and uh, out of the heat. It's really, really very challenging out there. I don't want to hear about anybody getting hurt uh, or worse. So uh, please be sure to hydrate, stay indoors as much as you can, and, um, and enjoy yourselves. Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Get out, enjoy, and uh, have fun. And I will see you uh, in the coming week ahead. So take good care. Bye-bye now. Thank you.